Soul Music by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. The History This is a story about memory, and this much can be remembered. That the death of the Discworld, for reasons of his own, once rescued a baby girl and took her to his home between the dimensions. He let her grow to become sixteen, because he believed that older children were easier to deal with than younger children, and this shows that you can be an immortal anthropomorphic personification and still get things, as it were, dead wrong. That he later hired an apprentice called Mortimer, or Mort for short. Between Mort and Isabel there was an instant dislike, and everyone knows what that means in the long term. As a substitute for the Grim Reaper, Mort was a spectacular failure, causing problems that led to a wobbling of reality and a fight between him and death, which Mort lost. And that for reasons of his own, death spared his life and sent him and Isabel back into the world. No one knows why Death started to take a practical interest in the human beings he had worked with for so long. It was probably just curiosity. Even the most efficient rat-catcher will sooner or later take an interest in rats. They might watch rats live and die, and record every detail of rat existence, although they may never themselves actually know what it is like to run the maze. But if it is true that the act of observing changes the thing which is observed, because of quantum, it is even more true that it changes the observer. Mort and Isabel got married. They had a child. This is also a story about sex and drugs and music with rocks in. Well, one out of three ain't bad. Actually, it's only 33%, but it could be worse. Where... To finish. A dark, stormy night. A coach, horses gone, plunging through the rickety, useless fence and dropping, tumbling into the gorge below. It doesn't even strike an outcrop of rock before it hits the dried riverbed far below and erupts into fragments. Miss Butts shuffled the paperwork nervously. Here was one from the girl aged six. What we did on our holidays. What I did on my holidays, I stayed with Grandad. He has a big white horse and a garden. It is all black. We had egg and chips. Then the oil from the coach lamps ignites, and there is a second explosion, out of which rolls, because there are certain conventions, even in tragedy, a burning wheel. And another paper, a drawing done at age seven, all in black. Miss Butts sniffed. It wasn't as though the girl had only a black crayon. It was a fact that the Quirm College for Young Ladies had quite expensive crayons of all colours. And then, after the last of the ember spits and crackles, there is silence. And the watcher, who turns and says to someone in the darkness, Yes, I could have done something, and rides away. Miss Butts shuffled paper again. She was feeling distracted and nervous, a feeling common to anyone who had much to do with the girl. Paper usually made her feel better. It was more dependable. Then there had been the matter of the accident. Miss Butts had broken such news before. It was an occasional hazard when you ran a large boarding school. The parents of many of the girls were often abroad on business of one sort or another, and it was sometimes the kind of business where the chances of rich reward go hand in hand with the risks of meeting unsympathetic men. Miss Butts knew how to handle these occasions. It was painful, but the thing ran its course. There was shock and tears, and then eventually it was all over. People had ways of dealing with it. There was a sort of script built into the human mind. Life went on. But the child had just sat there, 
It was the politeness that scared the daylights out of Miss Butts. She was not an unkind woman, despite a lifetime of being gently dried out on the stove of education, but she was conscientious and a stickler for propriety, and thought she knew how this sort of thing should go, and was vaguely annoyed that it wasn't going. Er, uh, if you would like to be alone, to have a cry, she'd prompted, in an effort to get things moving on the right track. Would that help? Susan had said. It would have helped Miss Butts. All she'd been able to manage was, I wonder if perhaps you fully understood what I have told you. The child had stared at the ceiling as though trying to work out a difficult problem in algebra, and then said, I expect I will. It was as if she'd already known, and had dealt with it in some way. Miss Butts had asked the teachers to watch Susan carefully. They'd said that it was hard, because... There was a tentative knock on Miss Butts' study door, as if it was being made by someone who'd really preferred not to be heard. She returned to the present. Come, she said. The door swung open. Susan always made no sound. The teachers had all remarked upon it. It was uncanny, they said. She was always in front of you when you least expected it. Ah, Susan, said Miss Butts, a tight smile scuttling across her face like a nervous tick over a worried sheep. Please sit down. Of course, Miss Butts. Miss Butts shuffled the papers. Susan? Yes, Miss Butts? I'm sorry to say that it appears you have been missed in lessons again. I don't understand, Miss Butts. The headmistress leaned forward. She felt vaguely annoyed with herself, but there was something frankly unlovable about the child. Academically brilliant at the things she liked doing, of course, but that was just it. She was brilliant in the same way that a diamond is brilliant, all edges and chilliness. Have you been doing it? she said. You promised you were going to stop this silliness. Miss Butts? You've been making yourself invisible again, haven't you? Susan blushed. So, rather less pinkly, did Miss Butts. I mean, she thought it's ridiculous. It's against all reason. It's... Oh, no. She turned her head and shut her eyes. Yes, Miss Butts, said Susan, just before Miss Butts said, Susan! Miss Butts shuddered. This was something else the teachers had mentioned. Sometimes Susan answered questions just before you asked them. She steadied herself. You're still sitting there, are you? Of course, Miss Butts. Ridiculous. It wasn't invisibility, she told herself. She just makes herself inconspicuous. She who... She concentrated. She'd written a little memo to herself against this very eventuality, and it was pinned to the file. She read, You are interviewing Susan Stowhelit. Try not to forget it. Susan, she ventured. Yes, Miss Butts? If Miss Butts concentrated, Susan was sitting in front of her. If she made an effort, she could hear the girl's voice. She just had to fight against a pressing tendency to believe that she was alone. I'm afraid Miss Cumber and Miss Greggs have complained, she managed. I'm always in class, Miss Butts. I dare say you are. Miss Traitor and Miss Stamp say they see you all the time. There'd been quite a staff-room argument about that. Is it because you like logic and maths and don't like language and history? Miss Butts concentrated. There was no way the child could have left the room. If she really stressed her mind, she could catch a suggestion of a voice saying, Don't know, Miss Butts. Susan, it really is most upsetting when... Miss Butts paused. She looked around the study and then glanced at a note pinned to the papers in front of her. She appeared to read it, looked puzzled for a moment, and then rolled it up and dropped it into the wastepaper basket. She picked up a pen and, after staring into space for a moment, turned her attention to the school accounts. Susan waited politely for a while, and then got up and left as quietly as possible. Certain things have to happen before other things. Gods play games with the fates of men. But first they have to get all the pieces on the board and look all over the place for the dice. It was raining in the small mountainous country of Chlamedos. It was always raining in Chlamedos. Rain was the country's main export. It had rain mines. Imp, the bard, sat under the evergreen, more out of habit than any real hope that it would keep the rain off. Water just dribbled through the spiky leaves and formed rivulets down the twigs, so that it was really a sort of rain concentrator. 
occasional lumps of rain would splat onto his head. He was eighteen, extremely talented, and currently not at ease with his life. He tuned his harp, his beautiful new harp, and watched the rain, tears running down his face and mingling with the drops. Gods like people like this. It is said that whosoever the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. In fact, whosoever the gods wish to destroy, they first hand the equivalent of a stick with a fizzing fuse and Acme Dynamite Company written on the side. It's more interesting and doesn't take so long. Susan mooched along the disinfectant-smelling corridors. She wasn't particularly worried about what Miss Butts was going to think. She didn't usually worry about what anyone thought. She didn't know why people forgot about her when she wanted them to, but afterwards they seemed a bit embarrassed about raising the subject. Sometimes some teachers had trouble seeing her. This was fine. She'd generally take a book into the classroom and read it peacefully, while all around her the principal exports of Clatch happened to other people. It was undoubtedly a beautiful harp. Very rarely a craftsman gets something so right that it is impossible to imagine an improvement. He hadn't bothered with ornamentation. That would have been some kind of sacrilege. And it was new, which was very unusual in Hlamedos. Most of the harps were old. It wasn't as if they wore out. Sometimes they needed a new frame or a neck or new strings, but the harp went on. The old bards said they got better as they got older, although old men tend to say this sort of thing regardless of daily experience. Imp plucked a string. The note hung in the air and faded. The harp was fresh and bright, and already it sang out like a bell. What it might be like in a hundred years' time was unimaginable. His father had said it was rubbish, that the future was written in stones, not notes. That had only been the start of the row. And then he'd said things, and he'd said things, and suddenly the world was a new and unpleasant place because things can't be unsaid. He'd said, You don't know anything. You're just a stupid old man. But I'm giving my life to music. One day soon, everyone will say I was the greatest musician in the world. Stupid words. As if any bard cared for any opinions except those of other bards, who'd spent a lifetime learning how to listen to music. But said, nevertheless. And if they're said with the right passion, and the gods are feeling bored, sometimes the universe will reform itself around words like that. Words have always had the power to change the world. Be careful what you wish for. You never know who will be listening. Or what, for that matter. Because perhaps something could be drifting through the universes, and a few words by the wrong person at the right moment may just cause it to veer in its course. Far away in the bustling metropolis of Ankh-Morpork, there was a brief crawling of sparks across an otherwise bare wall, and then there was a shop, an old musical instrument shop. No one remarked on its arrival. As soon as it appeared, it had always been there. Death sat staring at nothing, chin-bone resting on his hands. Albert approached very carefully. It had continually puzzled Death, in his more introspective moments, and this was one of them, why his servant always walked the same path across the floor. I mean, he thought, consider the size of the room, which went on to infinity, or as near infinity as makes no difference. In fact, it was about a mile. That's big for a room, whereas infinity you can hardly see. Death had got rather flustered when he'd created the house. Time and space were things to be manipulated, not obeyed. The internal dimensions had been a little too generous. He'd forgotten to make the outside bigger than the inside. It was the same with the garden. When he'd begun to take a little more interest in these things, he'd realised the role people seemed to think that colour played in concepts like, for example, roses. But he'd made them black. He liked black. It went with anything. It went with everything, sooner or later. The humans he'd known, and there had been a few, had responded to the impossible size of the rooms in a strange way, by simply ignoring them. Take Albert now. The big door had opened, Albert had stepped through, carefully balancing a cup and saucer, and a moment later had been well inside the room, on the edge of the relatively small square of carpet that surrounded Death's desk. Death gave up wondering how Albert covered the intervening space, when it dawned on him that to his servant... There was no intervening space. I've brought you some chamomile tea, sir, said Albert. Mmm, 
Sure. Sorry, I was thinking. What was it you said? Chamomile tea? I thought that was a kind of soap. You can put it in soap or tea, sir, said Albert. He was worried. He was always worried when death started to think about things. It was the wrong job for thinking about things, and he thought about them in the wrong way. How very useful. Clean, inside and out. Death put his chin on his hands again. Sir, said Albert after a while. Mm. It'll get cold if you leave it. Albert? Yes, sir? I have been wondering. Sir? What's it all about? Seriously, when you get right down to it. Oh, um, couldn't really say, sir. I didn't want to do it, Albert. You know that. Now I know what she meant. Not just about the knees. Who, sir? There was no reply. Albert looked back when he'd reached the door. Death was staring into space again. No one could stare quite like him. Not being seen wasn't a big problem. It was the things that she kept seeing that were more of a worry. There were the dreams. They were only dreams, of course. Susan knew that modern theory said that dreams were only images thrown up while the brain was filing the day's events. She would have been more reassured if the day's events had ever included flying white horses, huge dark rooms and lots of skulls. At least they were only dreams. She'd seen other things. For example, she'd never mentioned the strange woman in the dormitory the night Rebecca Snell put a tooth under the pillow. Susan had watched her come through the open window and stand by the bed. She looked a bit like a milkmaid and not at all frightening, even though she had walked through the furniture. There had been the jingle of coins. Next morning the tooth had gone and Rebecca was richer by one fifty-pence coin. Susan hated that sort of thing. She knew that mentally unstable people told children about the tooth fairy, but that was no reason for one to exist. It suggested woolly thinking. She disliked woolly thinking, which in any case was a major misdemeanour under the regime of Miss Butts. It was not otherwise a particularly bad one. Miss Eulalie Butts and her colleague Miss Delcross had founded the college on the astonishing idea that since girls had nothing much to do until someone married them, they may as well occupy themselves with learning things. There were plenty of schools in the world, but they were all run either by the various churches or by the guilds. Miss Butts objected to churches on logical grounds and deplored the fact that the only guilds that considered girls worth educating were the thieves and the seamstresses. But it was a big and dangerous world out there, and a girl could do worse than face it with a sound knowledge of geometry and astronomy under her bodice. For Miss Butts sincerely believed that there were no basic differences between boys and girls, at least none worth talking about. Well, none that Miss Butts would talk about anyway. And therefore she believed in encouraging logical thought and a healthy inquiring mind among the nascent women in her care, a course of action which is, as far as wisdom is concerned, on a par with going alligator hunting in a cardboard boat during the sinking season. For example, when she lectured to the school, pointed chin trembling, on the perils to be found outside in the town, three hundred healthy inquiring minds decided that, one, they should be sampled at the earliest opportunity, and logical thought wondered, two, exactly how Miss Butts knew about them. And the high, spike-topped walls around the college grounds looked simple enough to anyone with a fresh mind full of trigonometry and a body honed by healthy fencing, calisthenics and cold baths. Miss Butts could make peril seem really interesting. Anyway, that was the incident of the midnight visitor. After a while, Susan considered that she must have imagined it. That was the only logical explanation, and Susan was good at those. Everyone, they say, is looking for something. Imp was looking for somewhere to go. The farm cart that had brought him the last stretch of the way was rumbling off across the fields. He looked at the signpost. One arm pointed to Quirm, the other to Ankh Morpork. He knew just enough to know that Ankh Morpork was a big city, but built on loam and therefore of no interest to the druids in his family. He had three Ankh Morpork dollars and some change. It probably wasn't very much in Ankh Morpork. 
He didn't know anything about Quirm, except that it was on the coast. The road to Quirm didn't look very worn, while the one to Ark Moorpork was heavily rutted. It'd be sensible to go to Quirm to get the feel of city life. It'd be sensible to learn a bit about how city people thought before heading for Ark Moorpork, which they said was the largest city in the world. It'd be sensible to get some kind of a job in Quirm and raise a bit of extra cash. It'd be sensible to learn to walk before he started to run. Common sense told Imp all these things, so he marched off firmly towards Ankh-Morpork. As far as looks were concerned, Susan had always put people in mind of a dandelion on the point of telling the time. The college dressed its gals in a loose navy-blue woolen smock that stretched from neck to just above the ankle, practical, healthy, and as attractive as a plank. The waistline was somewhere around knee level. Susan was beginning to fill it out, however, in accordance with the ancient rules hesitantly and erratically alluded to by Miss Delcross in Biology and Hygiene. Gels left her class with the vague feeling that they were supposed to marry a rabbit. Susan had left with the feeling that the cardboard skeleton on the hook in the corner looked like someone she'd known. It was her hair that made people stop and turn to watch her. It was pure white, except for a black streak. School regulations required that it be in two plaits, but it had an uncanny tendency to unravel itself and spring back to its preferred shape, like Medusa's snakes. The question seldom addressed is where Medusa had snakes. Underarm hair is an even more embarrassing problem when it keeps biting the top of the deodorant bottle. And then there was the birthmark, if that's what it was. It only showed up if she blushed, when three faint pale lines appeared across her cheek and made it look exactly as though she'd been slapped. On the occasions when she was angry, and she was quite often angry, at the sheer stupidity of the world, they glowed. In theory, it was, around now, literature. Susan hated literature. She'd much prefer to read a good book. Currently, she had Wold's Logic and Paradox open on her desk and was reading it with her chin in her hands. She listened with half an ear to what the rest of the class was doing. It was a poem about daffodils. Apparently, the poet had liked them very much. Susan was quite stoical about this. It was a free country. People could like daffodils if they wanted to. They just should not, in Susan's very definite and precise opinion, be allowed to take up more than a page to say so. She got on with her education. In her opinion, school kept on trying to interfere with it. Around her, the poet's vision was taken apart with inexpert tools. The kitchen was built on the same gargantuan lines as the rest of the house. An army of cooks could get lost in it. The far walls were hidden in the shadows and the stovepipe, supported at intervals by soot-covered chains and bits of greasy rope, disappeared into the gloom somewhere a quarter of a mile above the floor. At least it did to the eye of the outsider. Albert spent his time in a small tiled patch big enough to contain the dresser, the table and the stove, and a rocking chair. When a man says, what's it all about then, seriously, when you get right down to it? He's in a bad way, he said, rolling a cigarette. So I don't know what it means when he says it. It's one of his fancies again. The room's only other occupant nodded. His mouth was full. All that business with his daughter, said Albert. I mean, daughter? And then he heard about apprentices. Nothing would do, but he had to go and get one. <laughs> Nothing but trouble, that was. And you, too, come to think of it, you're one of his fancies. No offence, meant, he added, aware of who he was talking to. You worked out all right. You do a good job. Another nod. He always gets it wrong said Albert. That's the trouble. Like when he heard about Hogswatch Night. Remember that? We had to do the whole thing. The oak tree in a pot, the paper sausages, the pork dinner. Him sitting there with a paper hat on saying, Is this jolly? I made him a little desk ornament thing and he gave me a brick. Albert put the cigarette to his lips. It had been expertly rolled. Only an expert could get a roll up so thin and yet so soggy. It was a good brick, mind. I've still got it somewhere. Squeak, said the death of rats. 
You put your finger on it right enough, said Albert. At least you would have done if you had a proper one. He always misses the point. You see, he can't get over things. He can't forget. He sucked on the wretched homemade until his eyes watered. What's it all about, seriously, when you get right down to it, said Albert. Oh, dear. He glanced up at the kitchen clock out of a special human kind of habit. It had never worked since Albert had bought it. He's normally in by this time, he said. I'd better do his tray. Can't think what's keeping him. The holy man sat under a holy tree, legs crossed, hands on knees. He kept his eyes shut in order to focus better on the infinite, and wore nothing but a loincloth in order to show his disdain of discly things. There was a wooden bowl in front of him. He was aware after a while that he was being watched. He opened one eye. There was an indistinct figure sitting a few feet away. Later on, he was sure that the figure had been of someone. He couldn't quite remember the description, but the person must certainly have had one. He was about this tall and sort of uh, definitely... Excuse me. Yes, my son? His brow wrinkled. You are male, aren't you? He added. You took a lot of finding, but I am good at it. Yes? I am told you know everything. The holy man opened the other eye. The secret of existence is to disdain earthly ties, shun the chimera of material worth, and seek oneness with the infinite, he said, and keep your thieving hands off my begging bowl. The sight of the supplicant was giving him trouble. I've seen the infinite, said the stranger. It's nothing special. The holy man glanced around. Don't be daft, he said. You can't see the infinite, cause it's infinite. I have. All right. What did it look like? It's blue. The holy man shifted uneasily. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. A quick burst of the infinite and a meaningful nudge in the direction of the begging bowl was how it was supposed to go. It's black, he muttered. Not, said the stranger, when seen from the outside. The night sky is black, but that is just space. Infinity, however, is blue. And I suppose you know what sound is made by one hand clapping, do you? said the holy man nastily. Yes. Cluh. The other hand makes the app. Aha! No, you're wrong there said the holy man, back on firmer ground. He waved a skinny hand. No sound, see? That wasn't a clap. That was just a wave. It was a clap. I just wasn't using both hands. What kind of blue, anyway? You just waved. I don't call that very philosophical. Duck egg? The holy man glanced down the mountain. Several people were approaching. They had flowers in their hair and were carrying what looked very much like a bowl of rice. Or possibly Odonil. Look, my son, the holy man said hurriedly. What exactly is it you want? I haven't got all day. Yes, you have. Take it from me. What do you want? Why do things have to be the way they are? Ah, uh, well... You don't know, do you? Not exactly. The whole thing is meant to be a mystery, see? The stranger stared at the holy man for some time, causing the man to feel that his head had become transparent. Then I will ask you a simpler question. How do humans forget? Forget what? Forget anything. Everything. It, uh, it happens automatically. The prospective acolytes had turned the bend on the mountain path. The holy man hastily picked up his begging bowl. Let's say this bowl is your memory, he said, waving it vaguely. It can only hold so much, see. New things come in, so old things must overflow. 
No, I remember everything. Everything. Doorknobs, the play of sunlight on hair, the sound of laughter, footsteps, every little detail as if it happened only yesterday, as if it happened only tomorrow. Everything. Do you understand? The holy man scratched his gleaming bald head. Mm, traditionally, he said, the ways of forgetting include joining the Clatchian Foreign Legion, drinking the waters of some magical river, no one knows where it is, and imbibing vast amounts of alcohol. Ah, yes, but alcohol debilitates the body and is a poison to the soul. Sounds good to me. Master! The holy man looked around irritably. The acolytes had arrived. Just a minute, I'm talking to... The stranger had gone. Oh, master, we have travelled for many miles over the... Said the acolyte. Shut up a minute, will you? The holy man put out his hand, palm turned vertical, and waved it a few times. He muttered under his breath. The acolytes exchanged glances. They hadn't expected this. Finally, their leader found a drop of courage. Master... The holy man turned and caught him across the ear. The sound this made was definitely a clap. Ah, got it, said the holy man. Now, what can I do for you? He stopped as his brain caught up with his ears. What did he mean, humans? Death walked thoughtfully across the hill to the place where a large white horse was placidly watching the view. He said, Go away. The horse watched him warily. It was considerably more intelligent than most horses, although this was not a difficult achievement. It seemed aware that things weren't right with its master. I may be some time, said Death, and he set out. It wasn't raining in Ark Morpork. This had come as a big surprise to Imp. What had also come as a surprise was how fast money went. So far he'd lost three dollars and twenty-seven pence. He'd lost it because he'd put it in a bowl in front of him while he played, in the same way that a hunter puts out decoys to get ducks. The next time he'd looked down, it had gone. People came to Ankh Morpork to seek their fortune. Unfortunately, other people sought it too. And people didn't seem to want bards, even ones who'd won the mistletoe award and centennial harp in the big Eisterfod in Chlamedos. He'd found a place in one of the main squares, tuned up and played. No one had taken any notice, except sometimes to push him out of the way as they hurried past, and apparently to nick his bowl. Eventually, just when he was beginning to doubt that he'd made the right decision in coming here at all, a couple of watchmen had wandered up. "'That's a harpy's playing nobby,' said one of them, after watching Imp for a while. "'Liar!' "'No, it's the honest truth.' I'm The fat guard frowned and looked down. You've just been waiting all your life to say that, ain't you, Nobby? he said. I bet you was born hoping that one day someone would say, That's a harp, so you could say, Liar, on account of it being pune or play on words. Well, har, har, har. Imp stopped playing. It was impossible to continue in the circumstances. It is a harp, actually, he said. I won it in... Ah, you're from Lamedus, right? said the fat guard. I can tell by your accent. Very musical people, the Hlamides. Sounds like a gargling with gravel to me, said the one identified as Nobby. You got a license, mate? License, said Imp. Very hot on licenses, the Guild of Musicians, said Nobby. They catch you playing music without a license, they take your instrument and they shove it. No, no, said the other watchman. Don't go scaring the boy. Let's just say it's not much fun if you're a piccolo player, said Nobby. But surely music is as free as the air and the sky, see, said Imp. Not round here, it's not. Just a word to the wise friend, said Nobby. I never ever heard of a guild of musicians, said Imp. It's in Tinlid Alley, said Nobby. You want to be a musician, you've got to join the guild. Imp had been brought up to obey the rules. The Hlamides were very law-abiding. I shall go there directly, he said. The guards watched him go. He's wearing a night dress, said Corporal Nobbs. Bardic robe, Nobby, said Sergeant Colon. The guards strolled onwards. Very bardic, the Lamides. How long do you give him, Sarge? 
Colon waved a hand in the flat rocking motion of someone hazarding an informed guest. Two or three days, he said. They rounded the bulk of Unseen University and ambled along the backs, a dusty little street that saw little traffic or passing trade and was therefore much favoured by the watch as a place to lurk and have a smoke and explore the realms of the mind. You know, salmon, Sarge, said Nobby. It is a fish of which I am aware, yes. You know, they sell kind of slices of it in tins. So I'm given to understand, yes. Well, how come all the tins are the same size? Salmon gets thinner at both ends. Interesting point, Nobby. I think the watchman stopped and stared across the street. Corporal Nobbs followed his gaze. That shop, said Sergeant Colon, that shop there. Was it there yesterday? Nobby looked at the peeling paint, the little grime-encrusted window, the rickety door. "'Course,' he said. "'It's always been there. It's been there years!' Colon crossed the street and rubbed at the grime. There were dark shapes vaguely visible in the gloom. "'Yeah, right,' he mumbled. "'It's just that... I mean, was it there for years yesterday?' "'You all right, Sarge?' "'Let's go, Nobby,' said the sergeant, walking away as fast as he could. Where, Sarge? Anywhere not here. In the dark mounds of merchandise, something felt their departure. Imp had already admired the guild buildings, the majestic frontage of the Assassin's Guild, the splendid columns of the Thieves' Guild, the smoking yet still impressive hole where the Alchemist's Guild had been up until yesterday. And it was therefore disappointing to find that the Guild of Musicians, when he eventually located it, wasn't even a building. It was just a couple of pokey rooms above a barber shop. He sat in the brown-walled waiting room and waited. There was a sign on the wall opposite. It said, For your comfort and convenience, you will not smoke. Imp had never smoked in his life. Everything in Hlamedos was too soggy to smoke. But he suddenly felt inclined to try. The room's only other occupants were a troll and a dwarf. He was not at ease in their company. They kept looking at him. Finally, the dwarf said, Are you elvish? Me? No. You look a bit elvish around the hair. Not elvish at all, honestly. Where are you from? said the troll. Hlamedos, said Imp. He shut his eyes. He knew what trolls and dwarfs traditionally did to people suspected of being elves. The Guild of Musicians could take lessons. "'What that you got there?' said the troll. It had two large squares of darkish glass in front of its eyes, supported by wire frames hooked around its ears. "'It's a harpsy. "'That what you play?' "'Yes.' "'You a druid, then?' "'No.' There was a silence again as the troll marshalled its thoughts. "'You'll look like a druid in that nighty,' it rumbled after a while. The dwarf on the other side of the imp began to snigger. Trolls disliked druids, too. Any sapient species which spends a lot of time in a stationary rock-like pose objects to any other species which drags it sixty miles on rollers and buries it up to its knees in a circle. It tends to feel it has cause for disgruntlement. "'Everyone dresses like this in Hlamedos, see?' said Imp. "'But I'm a bard. I'm not a druid. I hate rocks.' Whoops, said the dwarf quietly. The troll looked Imp up and down, slowly and deliberately. Then it said, without any particular trace of menace, You not long in this town? Just arrived, said Imp. I won't even reach the door, he thought. I'm going to be mashed into a pulp. Here is some free advice what you should know. It has free advice I am giving you gratis for nothing. In this town, rock is a word for troll. A bad word for troll used by stupid humans. You call a troll a rock, you got to be prepared to spend some time looking for your head. Especially if you looks a bit elvish around the ears. This is free advice because you are a bard and a maker of music like me. Right, uh, thank you. <laughs> yes, said Imp, awash with relief. He grabbed his harp and played a few notes. That seemed to lighten the atmosphere a bit. Everyone knew elves had never been able to play music.
Leas Bluestone, said the troll, extending something massive with fingers on it. Imp e killing, said Imp. Nothing to do with moving rocks around at all in any way. A smaller, more knobbly hand was thrust up at Imp from another direction. His gaze travelled up its associated arm, which was the property of the dwarf. He was small, even for a dwarf. A large bronze horn lay across his knees. Glod, Glodson, said the dwarf. You just play the harp? Anything with strings on it, said Imp, but the harp is the queen of instruments, see? I can blow anything, said Glod. Really? said Imp. He sought for some polite comment. That must make you very popular. The troll heaved a big leather sack off the floor. This is what I play, he said. A number of large, round rocks tumbled out onto the floor. Lias picked up one and flicked it with a finger. It went bam. Music made from rocks, said Imp. What you call it? We call it Grig Hugger, said Lias, which means music made from rocks. The rocks were all of different sizes, carefully tuned here and there by small nicks carved out of the stone. May I, said Imp, be my guest. Imp selected a small rock and flicked it with his finger. It went pop. A smaller one went bing. What do you do with them, he said. I bang them together. And then what? What do you mean, and then what? What do you do after you bang them together? I bang them together again, said Leas, one of nature's drummers. The door to the inner room opened, and a man with a pointed nose peered round it. You lot together, he snapped. There was indeed a river, according to legend, one drop of which would rob a man of his memory. Many people assumed that this was the River Ankh, whose waters can be drunk or even cut up and chewed. A drink from the Ankh would quite probably rob a man of his memory, or at least cause things to happen to him that he would on no account wish to recall. In fact, there was another river that would do the trick. There was, of course, a snag. No one knows where it is, because they're always pretty thirsty when they find it. Death turned his attention elsewhere. Seventy-five dollars, said Imp, just to play music. That's twenty-five dollars registration fee, twenty percent of fees, and fifteen dollars voluntary compulsory annual subscription to the pension fund, said Mr. Cleet, secretary of the guild. But we haven't got that much money. The man gave a shrug, which indicated, although the world did indeed have many problems, this was one of them that was not his. But maybe we shall be able to pay when we've earned some said Imp weakly. If you could just, you know, let us have a week or two. Can't let you play anywhere without you being members of the Guild, said Mr. Cleet. But we can't be members of the Guild until we've played, said Glod. That's right, said Mr. Cleet cheerfully. <laughs> it was a strange laugh, totally mirthless and vaguely bird-like. It was very much like its owner, who was what you would get if you extracted fossilised genetic material from something in amber and then gave it a suit. Lord Vetinari had encouraged the growth of the guilds. They were the big wheels on which the clockwork of a well-regulated city ran. A drop of oil here, a spoke inserted there, of course, and by and large it all worked. And gave rise, in the same way that compost gives rise to worms, to Mr. Cleet. He was not, by the standard definitions, a bad man. In the same way, a plague-bearing rat is not, from a dispassionate point of view, a bad animal. Mr. Cleet worked hard for the benefit of his fellow men. He devoted his life to it. For there are many things in the world that need doing that people don't want to do, and were grateful to Mr. Cleet for doing them. Keeping minutes, for example, making sure the membership role was quite up to date. Filing. Organising. He'd worked hard on behalf of the Thieves' Guild, although he hadn't been a thief, at least in the sense normally meant. Then there'd been a rather more senior vacancy in the Fools' Guild, and Mr. Cleet was no fool. And finally, there had been the secretaryship of the musicians. Technically, he should have been a musician, so he bought a comb and paper. Since up until that time the Guild had been run by real musicians, and therefore the membership role was unrolled and hardly anyone had paid any dues lately, and the organisation owed several thousand dollars to Chryso Praise, the troll, at punitive interest, 
He didn't even have to audition. When Mr. Cleet had opened the first of the unkempt ledgers and looked at the unorganised mess, he had felt a deep and wonderful feeling. Since then, he'd never looked back. He had spent a long time looking down. And although the Guild had a president and a council, it also had Mr. Cleet, who took the minutes and made sure things ran smoothly and smiled very quietly to himself. It is a strange but reliable fact that whenever men throw off the yoke of tyrants and set out to rule themselves, there emerges, like a mushroom after rain, Mr. Cleet. <laughs> Mr. Cleet laughed at things in inverse proportion to the actual humour of the situation. But that's nonsense. Welcome to the wonderful world of the Guild economy, said Mr. Cleet. <laughs> "'What happens if we play without belonging to the Guild, then?' said Imp. "'Do you confiscate our instruments?' "'To start with,' said the Secretary, "'and then we sort of give them back to you. <laughs> "'Incidentally, you're not Elvish, are you?' Seventy-five dollars is criminal,' said Imp, "'as they plodded along the evening streets. "'Worse than criminal,' said Glod. "'I hear the Thieves' Guild just charges a percentage.' And they give you a proper guild membership and everything, Lias rumbled, even a pension, and they have a day trip to Querm, and a picnic every year. Music should be free, said Imp. So what are we going to do now, said Lias. Anyone got any money, said Glod. Got a dollar, said Lias. Got some pennies, said Imp. Then we're going to have a decent meal, said Glod, right here. He pointed up at a sign. Gimlet's whole food, said Leas. Gimlet sounds dwarfish. Vermin chelly and stuff. Now he's doing troll food too, said Glod. Decided to put aside ethnic differences in the cause of making more money. Five types of coal, seven types of coke and ash sediments to make you dribble. You'll like it. Dwarf bread too, said Imp. You like dwarf bread, said Glod. Love it, said Imp. What, proper dwarf bread? said Glod. You sure? Yes, it's nice and crunchy, see. Glod shrugged. That proves it, he said. No one who likes dwarf bread can be elvish. The place was almost empty. A dwarf in an apron that came up to its armpits watched them over the top of the counter. You do fried rat? said Glod. Best damn fried rat in the city, said Gimlet. OK, give me four fried rats. And some dwarf bread, said Imp. And some coke, said Lias, patiently. You mean rat heads or rat legs? No, uh, four fried rats. And some coke. You want ketchup on those rats? No. You sure? No ketchup. And some coke. And two hard-boiled eggs, said Imp. The others gave him an odd look. Well, I, I just like hard-boiled eggs, he said. And some coke. And two hard-boiled eggs. And some coke. Seventy-five dollars, said Glad as they sat down. What's three times seventy-five dollars? Many dollars, said Leas. More than two hundred dollars, said Imp. I don't think I've ever seen two hundred dollars, said Glad. Not while I've been awake. We raise money, said Leas. We can't raise money by being musicians, said Imp. It's the guild law. If they catch you, they take your instrument and shove it up. He stopped. Let's just say it's not much fun for the piccolo player, he added from memory. I shouldn't think the trombonist is very happy either, said Glod, putting some pepper on his rat. I can't go back home now, said Imp. I said I'd... I can't go back home yet. Even if I could, I'd have to raise monoliths like my brothers. All they care about is stone circles. If I go back home now, said Leas, I'll be clubbing druids. They both very carefully sidled a little further away from each other. Then we play somewhere where the guild won't find us, said Glod cheerfully. We find a club somewhere. Got a club, said Leas proudly. Got a nail in it. I mean, a nut club, said Glod. Still got a nail in it at night. 
I happen to know, said Glod, abandoning that line of conversation, that there's a lot of places in the city that don't like paying guild rates. We could do a few gigs and raise the money with no trouble. All three of us together, said Imp. Sure. But we play dwarf music and human music and troll music, said Imp. I'm not sure they'll go together. I mean, dwarfs listen to dwarf music, humans listen to human music, trolls listen to troll music. What do we get if we mix it all together? It'd be dreadful. We're getting along okay, said Leas, getting up and fetching the salt from the counter. We're musicians, said Glod. It's not the same with real people. Yeah, right, said the troll. Leas sat down. There was a cracking noise. Leas stood up. Oh, he said. Imp reached over, slowly and with great care. He picked the remains of his harp off the bench. Oh, said Leas. A string curled back with a sad little sound. It was like watching the death of a kitten. I won that at the Eistert Fod, said Imp. Could you... glue it back together, said Glod eventually. Imp shook his head. There's no one left in Hlamedos who knows how, see? Yes, but in the Strait of Cunning Artificers... I'm real sorry. I mean, real sorry. I don't know how it got there. It wasn't your fault. Imp tried ineffectually to fit a couple of pieces together, but you couldn't repair a musical instrument. He remembered the old bard saying that. They had a soul. All instruments had a soul. If they were broken, the soul of them escaped, flew away like a bird. What was put together again was just a thing, a mere assemblage of wood and wire. It would play. It might even deceive the casual listener, but you might as well push someone over a cliff and then stitch them together again and expect them to come alive. Um, maybe we could get you another one then, said Glod. There's, there's a nice little music shop in the backs. He stopped. Of course there was a nice little music shop in the backs. It had always been there. In the backs, he repeated just to make sure. Bound to get one there, in the backs. Yes. Been there years. Not one of these, said Imp. Before a craftsman even touches the wood, he has to spend two weeks sitting wrapped in a bullock hide in a cave behind a waterfall. Why? I don't know. It's traditional. He has to get his mind pure of all distractions. There's bound to be something else, though, said Glod. We'll buy something. You can't be a musician without an instrument. I haven't got any money, said Imp. Glod slapped him on the back. That doesn't matter, he said. You've got friends. We'll help you. Least we can do. But we all spent everything we had on this meal. There's no more money, said Imp. That's a negative way of looking at it, said Glod. Well, yes. We haven't got any, see? I'll sort out something, said Glod. I'm a dwarf. We know about money. Knowing about money is is practically my middle name. That's a long middle name. It was almost dark when they reached the shop, which was right opposite the high walls of the Unseen University. It looked the kind of musical instrument emporium which doubles as a pawn shop, since every musician has at some time in his life had to hand over his instrument if he wants to eat and sleep indoors. You ever bought anything in here? said Leas. No, not that I remember, said Glod. It's shut, said Leas. Glod hammered on the door. After a while it opened a crack, just enough to reveal a thin slice of face belonging to an old woman. We want to buy an instrument, ma'am, said Imp. One eye and a slice of mouth looked him up and down. Ew, human? Yes, ma'am. All right, then. The shop was lit by a couple of candles. The old woman retired to the safety of the counter, where she watched them very carefully for any signs of murdering her in bed. The trio moved carefully among the merchandise. It seemed that the shop had accumulated its stock from unclaimed pledges over the centuries. Musicians were often short of money. There was one definition of a musician. There were battle horns, there were lutes, there were drums. This is junk said Imp, under his breath. Glod blew the dust off a crumb horn and put it to his lips, achieving a sound like the ghost of a refried bean. 
I reckon there's a dead mouse in here, he said, peering into the depths. It was all right before you blew it, snapped the old woman. There was an avalanche of symbols from the other end of the shop. Sorry, Leas called out. Glod opened the lid of an instrument that was entirely unfamiliar to Imp. It revealed a row of keys. Glod ran his stumpy fingers over them, producing a sequence of sad, tinny notes. What is it? whispered Imp. A virginal, said the dwarf. Any good to us? Shouldn't think so. Imp straightened up. He felt that he was being watched. The old lady was watching, but there was something else. It's no use. There's nothing here, he said loudly. Hey, what was that? said Glod. I said, there's nothing. I heard something. What? There it is again. There was a series of crashes and thumps behind them as Leas liberated a double bass from a drift of old music stands and tried to blow down the sharp bit. There was a funny sound when you spoke, said Glod. Say something. Imp hesitated, as people do when, after having used a language all their lives, they're told to say something. Imp, he said. It came from... Glod lifted aside a pile of ancient sheet music. There was a musical graveyard behind it, including a skinless drum, a set of lancre bagpipes without the pipes, and a single maraca, possibly for use by a zen flamenco dancer. And something else. The dwarf pulled it out. It looked vaguely like a guitar carved out of a piece of ancient wood by a blunt stone chisel. Although dwarfs did not, as a rule, play stringed instruments, Glod knew a guitar when he saw one. They were supposed to be shaped like a woman, but this was only the case if you thought that women had no legs, a long neck, and too many ears. Imp, he said. Yes. The sound had a saw-edged, urgent fringe to it. There were twelve strings, but the body of the instrument was solid wood, not at all hollow. It was more or less just a shape to hold the strings. It resonated to your voice, said Glod. How can it? Glod clamped his hand over the strings and beckoned the other two closer. We're right by the university here, he whispered. Magic leaks out. It's a well-known fact. Or maybe some wizard pawned it. Don't look a gift rat in the mouth. Can you play a guitar? Imp went pale. You mean like folk music? He took the instrument. Folk music was not approved of in Chlamedos, and the singing of it was rigorously discouraged. It was felt that anyone aspiring a fair young maiden one morning in May was entitled to take whatever steps they considered appropriate without someone writing it down. Guitars were frowned upon as being, well, too easy. Imp struck a chord. It created a sound quite unlike anything he'd heard before. There were resonances and odd echoes that seemed to run and hide among the instrumental debris, and pick up additional harmonics, and then bounce back again. It made his spine itch. But you couldn't be even the worst musician in the world without some kind of instrument. Right, said Glod. He turned to the old woman. You don't call this a music instrument, do you? He demanded. Look at it. Half of it's not even there. Glod, I don't think, Imp began. Under his hand the strings trembled. The old woman looked at the thing. Ten dollars, she said. Ten dollars? Ten dollars, said Glod. It's not worth two dollars. That's right, said the old woman. She brightened up a bit in a nasty way, as if looking forward to a battle in which no expense would be spared. And it's ancient, said Glod. Antique. Would you listen to that tone? It's ruined. Mellow. You don't get craftsmen like that these days. Only because we've learned from experience. Imp looked at the thing again. The strings resonated by themselves. They had a blue tint to them and a slightly fuzzy look, as though they never quite stopped vibrating. He lifted it close to his mouth and whispered, Imp. The strings hummed. Now he noticed the chalk mark. It was almost faded, and all it was was a mark. Just a stroke of the chalk. Glod was in full flow. Dwarfs were said to be the keenest of financial negotiators, second only in acumen and effrontery to little old ladies. 
Imp tried to pay attention to what was going on. Right then, Glod was saying. It's a deal, yes? A deal, said the little old lady. And don't go spitting on your hand before we shake. That sort of thing's unhygienic. Glod turned to Imp. I think I handled that pretty well, he said. Glod, listen, this is a very... Got twelve dollars? What? Something of a bargain, I think. There was a thump behind them. Leas appeared, rolling a very large drum and carrying a couple of cymbals under his arm. I said I'd got no money, Imp hissed. Yes, but, well, everyone says they've got no money. That's sense. You don't want to go around saying you've got money. You mean, you've, you've really got no money? No. Not even twelve dollars? No. Leas dumped the drum, the cymbals, and a pile of sheet music on the counter. How much for everything? he said. Fifteen dollars, said the old woman. Leas sighed and straightened up. There was a distant look in his eyes for a moment, and then he hit himself on the jaw. He fumbled around inside his mouth with a finger, and then produced... Imp stared. Here, let me have a look, said Glod. He snatched the thing from Leas's unprotesting fingers and examined it carefully. Hey, fifty carrots at least. I'm not taking that, said the old woman. It's been in the troll's mouth. You eat eggs, don't you, said Glod. Anyway, everyone knows troll's teeth are pure diamond. The old woman took the tooth and examined it by candlelight. If I took it along to one of those jewellers in Nonsuch Street, they'd tell me it's worth two hundred dollars, said Glod. Well, I'm telling you it's worth fifteen right here, said the old lady. The diamond magically disappeared somewhere about her person. She gave them a bright, fresh smile. Why couldn't we just take it off her, said Glod, when they were outside. Because she's a poor, defenceless old woman, said Imp. Exactly, my point exactly. Glod looked up at Leas. You got a whole mouth full of them things? Yep. Only I owe my landlord two months, right? Don't even think about it, said the troll, levelly. Behind them, the door slammed shut. Look, cheer up, said Glod. Tomorrow I'll find us a gig. Don't worry. I'll know everyone in this city. Three of us. That's a band. We haven't even practised together properly, said Imp. We'll practice as we go along, said Glod. Welcome to the world of professional musicianship. Susan did not know much about history. It always seemed a particularly dull subject. The same stupid things were done over and over again by tedious people. What was the point? One king was pretty much like another. The class was learning about some revolt in which some peasants had wanted to stop being peasants and since the nobles had won, had stopped being peasants really quickly. Had they bothered to learn to read and acquire some history books, they'd have learnt about the uncertain merits of things like scythes and pitchforks when used in battle against crossbows and broadswords. She listened half-heartedly for a while until boredom set in, and then took out a book and let herself fade from the notice of the world. Squeak! Susan glanced sideways. There was a tiny figure on the floor by her desk. It looked very much like a rat skeleton in a black robe, holding a very small scythe. Susan looked back at her book. Such things did not exist. She was quite certain about that. Squeak! Susan looked down again. The apparition was still there. There had been cheese on toast for supper the previous night. In books, at least, you were supposed to expect things after a late-night meal like that. You don't exist, she said. You're just a piece of cheese. Squeak? When the creature was sure it had got her full attention, it pulled out a tiny hourglass on a silver chain and pointed at it urgently. Against all rational considerations, Susan reached down and opened her hand. The thing climbed onto it, its feet felt like pins, and looked at her expectantly. Susan lifted it up to eye level. All right, perhaps it was a figment of her imagination. She ought to take it seriously. You're not going to say something like, Oh, my paws and whiskers, are you? She said quietly. If you do, I shall go and drop you in the privy. The rat shook its skull. And you're real? Squeak, 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 squeak. 
Look, I don't understand, said Susan patiently. I don't speak rodent. We only do Clatchian in modern languages, and I only know how to say, My aunt's camel has fallen in the mirage. And if you are imaginary, you might try to be a bit more... lovable. A skeleton, even a small one, is not a naturally lovable object, even if it has got an open countenance and a grin. But the feeling... No, she realised the memory was creeping over her from somewhere that this one was not only real but on her side. It was an unfamiliar concept. Her side had normally consisted of her. The late rat regarded Susan for a moment, and then in one movement gripped the tiny scythe between its teeth and sprang off Susan's hand, landed on the classroom floor, and scuttled away between the desks. It's not even as if you've got paws and whiskers, said Susan. Not proper ones, anyway. The skeletal rat stepped through the wall. Susan turned back to her book and ferociously read Noxuse's Divisibility Paradox, which demonstrated the impossibility of falling off a log. End of CD 1